Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. With all due respect, I reject your theory completely. But you know what? There needs to be some backlash to this. This would be disastrous. There really has to be a better way. And I think the biggest question here is, what the hell is going on? The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. Move for present. Get in the race. Will he run? And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. So glad to have you with us. Let us get right to it. I know you cannot judge, what's the cliche, a book by its cover. For example, you could look at somebody who looks like they're a bum and, and they might be a multimillionaire. You could look at somebody who looks like they just don't have a brain in their head and then it turns out to be, you know, it's, it's the second coming of Albert Einstein. But every once in a while you hear stories and in your mind's eye, you picture what the person or the people involved are going to look like. And if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620, I have one of those stories. The headline in the story says, a Florida couple had sex in the back of a police car after DUI arrests. All right, it involves, here's the story. Nassau County Sheriff's Office deputy saw Megan Mondinaro, 35, and Aaron Seth Thomas, 31, riding bikes without lights on around 11.30 p.m. Friday in Fernando Beach down in Florida. In the report, uh, both okay, both riders cut into the middle of the road were nearly hit by a car, which led the deputy to conduct a traffic stop. In the report, the deputy said he detected a strong odor of an alcoholic beverage emitting from both of them. They had bloodshot, watery eyes, were slurring their words, so they're drunkenly riding their bikes. All right. The story says things got strange after both of them were arrested on DUI charges and placed in the back of the deputy's patrol car. The deputy says, while I was outside my patrol vehicle, Megan and Aaron took their clothes off and started to have sex in the back of the squad car. When I opened the door to stop them, Aaron was naked, and Megan had her pants down around her knees. I also observed her bra was halfway off and her breasts were fully visible. In other words, they're doing it in the back of the squad car. Um, So then they pull the guy off the girl. He was removed from the patrol car, managed, then he takes off running. So he is presumably naked. I don't know what sort of state he was in, but he's naked. He's running. He presumed he managed to get away, so he runs from the scene. They catch him behind a Cold Stone Creamery restaurant. He was taken to the hospital for treatment before being sent, sent to the Nassau County Detention Center. All right, so you, you hear this story, and I understand in your mind's eye, you are picturing what does the, do this, does this couple look like? Okay, they're drunk on the bikes, they get arrested, they get put in the back of the squad car, and they decide that this is the moment for romance, and they disrobe and start getting it on in the back of the squad car. Now now tell me, Gruel, don't you want to know, don't you have an image in your mind of what those two people look like, right? You've got an image in your mind, right? I I guess, sure. All right, sure, you want to know exactly, okay, what do these people look like? All right, well, again... I understand that you cannot judge a book by its cover, and I fully appreciate that. However, let me just tell you this. In this particular situation, the two people who were involved in this, 
they look exactly exactly like the people you like you would think they would look like so if you follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620 um you want to see what the folks that were doing it in the back of a squad car look like it, all right it will reconfirm whatever your image is i've got their photograph up there and also on twitter <sighs> this is more local Free legal advice from a recovering lawyer. Now, did you see this story? We, we've talked about before the Crusher statue that they collected, like, I think $40,000 in the GoFundMe thing, and they erected the statue down in South Milwaukee to South Milwaukee's favorite son, the, the, the Crusher. You know, had a big unveiling last summer, a big deal. Well, perhaps you saw the story that there were two or three of these punks who took a landscaping brick and were destroying damaging the the statue ended up causing like twelve fourteen hundred dollars worth of damage because at least as one of them says he thought it would be cool right to, to do that so they're, they're banging away at the statue like just just vandalism for the sake of vandalism well one of the morons who did this has been arrested and if you follow me on twitter all right i i got a comment on this one again it's, it's jeff wagner at 620 it's at jeff wagner 620 um It turns out that the kid that they've arrested for doing this, he's 18 years old. First of all, he did it on a surveillance camera. Secondly, he apparently had had extensive prior contacts with the local cops, so he was known to the cops. And third, he's got the word Milwaukee tattooed across his face. Now, I assume it's a tattoo, but it's in big letters. So here, here is my point. I've got a link to the story and a link to the, this kid's mugshot. All right, free legal advice from a recovering attorney. If you've had prior contacts with the local cops and you've got Milwaukee tattooed across your face, don't vandalize a statue in front of a surveillance camera. Sure, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I, you, you cannot make this stuff up. Uh, look, and look when, when I was chasing drug dealers back in the U.S. Attorney's Office, sometimes you had to work really hard. You'd spend months trying to crack a drug ring or something like that. And then every once in a while, you would have what we would call low-hanging fruit. You know, the really stupid criminal who ended up, you know, getting caught Well, in this particular case, this 18-year-old South Milwaukee guy, his name is James Dudgeon, he would be what we in law enforcement used to call the low-hanging fruit, the dim bulb, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, the kid who decides, I'm going to vandalize the statue in front of the surveillance camera. It's going to be tough to identify me because... Gee, it's not like the cops don't know who I am. And by the way, if they don't, I've got Milwaukee tattooed all across my face. Huh. You can see his picture as well. Uh, follow me at Jeff Wagner 620 on Twitter. When we come back, really? Okay, Serb Hall, famous for a lot of stuff. All right, not one of their finer moments we discuss. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. God save us from political correctness. Now, if you go over to Sally's restaurant, just kind of the north, wonderful, wonderful place, Port Washington Road, and just a little bit south of Hampton, you go into Sally's restaurant, and in the begin, in the front of the restaurant, they've got pictures of different people up there. My photograph is on the wall. 
Yep, I, I'm up on the wall at Sally's because I have eaten at Sally's restaurant, and they consider me to be a minor celebrity with the emphasis on minor. And and if you look around the, the, the wall that they have there, in addition to my photograph, there are a number of other photographs of people, some of whom are real celebrities. But you know the one thing that everybody who's pictured that's up on that wall has in common? It is the fact that we have all eaten at Sally's restaurant. All right, that that's that's the deal. The owner, Glenn, isn't <laughs> I mean, he's not like getting pictures of people and putting them up on the wall if they've never eaten there. That wouldn't make any sense. The idea is here's people who have actually been to Sally's. And the same is true for a number of other restaurants. You walk into a lot of restaurants and they will have these walls where they're they've got photographs of people who have actually eaten there. Now I understand that there's some restaurants, um, I was in one in Colorado a couple weeks ago, and the, the no, it was actually, it was in Amsterdam, and it was like an Americanized burger place, and they had pictures of celebrities and stuff, but they were just still photos. It wasn't meant to be the people lived that had been there. But in general, a lot of times, those photographs are photographs of people who have actually been there. Okay. Which brings us to American Serb Hall down on, on Forest Home. It's, yeah, you've probably been to Far, to Serb Hall. It has for years and years been sort of a political epicenter of the South Side. Politicians running for local, state, and national office have used Serb Hall over the years to have rallies, events, things like that. And over the years, when, you know, the, these candidates have have been there, what's happened is the management at Serb Hall, you know, a lot of times it, it's gotten attention. Remember, there was the first President Bush, he was bowling there, as I recall, and he like slipped or something like that. But it, it made it made all, all the news. But Serb Hall has had a room called the, the Hall of Presidents. And the room has portraits of various presidents. Now, you will not find, you would not find George Washington's portrait on the Hall of Presidents at Serb Hall. You know why? Because George Washington had never been to Serb Hall. You would not find Abraham Lincoln's portrait on the wall in the Hall of Presidents at Serb Hall, because even though Abraham Lincoln was a president, he had never been to Serb Hall. You would have found the portraits of seven presidents. Starting with President Eisenhower, I, I I was trying to, I've seen this. I'm trying to think of all the presidents. There were seven. Um, the first President Bush I know was there. President Reagan was there. President Clinton was there. President Carter was there. And President Eisenhower was there. And, and there, there were two others. I'm not sure which those those two were. But, but the people that were up there on the Hall of Presidents were people who had actually been to Serb Hall, right? These are people who had been there. Well, those portraits aren't up there anymore, because what happened is during the summer, Sir Paul apparently made the decision that we're going to repaint the room. And then they made the decision that, all right, now that we've repainted the room, we are not going to put the portraits of these presidents up again. Now, did they make the decision because they decided, hey, we, we just we we want to redecorate. We just we want to go with a different theme. You know, we want to turn it into, I don't know, we want a nautical theme or, or we want a Caribbean theme to the room. Was, was that the decision? No, that's not why they did what they did. They made the decision not to put the portraits back up because, according to the story on Channel 12, um, some groups 
Some groups, whatever that means, complained about the portraits not representing diversity. What that means is, let's be honest, President Obama's portrait was not up. It was not up. Well, why was President Obama's portrait not on the Hall of Presidents? Because President Obama, of course, was the president. Well, his portrait was not up for the same reason that Abraham Lincoln's portrait was not up, for the same reason that um, that George Washington's portrait was not up on the wall. It's because Barack Obama never went to Serb Hall. So Serb Hall, in the face of what had has to be a handful of, of complaints, has decided, okay, we're not going to put the portraits up anymore because, I don't know, somebody's complaining that Barack Obama's portrait is not there. 414-799-1620, that is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This has to be one of the most ridiculous decisions that I have seen, heard of a private business making in a long, long time. Yes, they have the right to redecorate their building however they want. They have the right to decide what portraits go up and what don't. But the idea that we can no longer recognize presidents who were here because, gee, there's a lack of diversity because a guy who's never been here isn't depicted, I think it is an appalling, an appalling bow to political correctness. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Should the president's pictures be back up there, including and just limited to the ones who actually went to Sir Paul? Put another way, should Sir Paul be apologetic or upset or giving in to people who are complaining that, gee, a president who was never here, his portrait doesn't hang with the ones who were? 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Shame on Sir Paul. We discuss in just a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We're joined by Nick from Sir Paul. Nick, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, You're the general manager? Yep. Okay. Uh, The story on Channel 12 the other night says Sir Paul's manager said groups had complained about the presidential portraits not representing diversity. Was that you? It was. Okay. What what isn't mentioned are the probably three or four other reasons that we were looking at this issue, and so okay, I'm, I'll let you get to that in just a second. So multiple reasons, but let let's start with this. My first question is, who complained about the about the lack of diversity? What, how how many people and and who were they? Well. We're not going to identify which of our customers complained. It's why not? Fair to them. Well, well, but so, <laughs> well, well, well we're, why, why we're not? We're a private business, and we're not going to, you know, out any of our customers. How many people? Well, are we talking groups? Are we talking one? Are we talking ten? Are we talking a hundred? Are we a talking a thousand? There have been a number of them over the last several years, and and so, but it's not just about the president's portraits and the fact that they're white. We have wedding customers that have asked for those portraits to be removed for their weddings. We've had quinceanera customers that have asked. We've had prom customers that have asked. You know, it, it is way beyond, and I explained this to the reporter, and he chose not to identify all of the other issues that we discussed, but those pictures are five feet tall, mm-hmm. and they dominate the room when you walk in. So when we redid those walls, we decided we're going to wait to put them up and consider some other options on 
if we're going to put them all back up or if we're going to create some temporary covers with patterns on them that we could use to cover them up for people that don't want them to to be the primary focus when they go into their banquet. Well, so let me ask you that if the, well, I, but, and you get to make business decisions. But my question would be, why would you then say to the reporter that diversity was at least one of the concerns if it wasn't a concern? It was a concern of some customers, not. Not necessarily our concern, but our. We oh, okay, well, let me consider. let me be clear here. You're, are you saying then that the story on Channel Twelve is incorrect, and that your decision to remove the presidential portraits was not in relation or not based on, at least in part, complaints from these unspecified customers about a lack of diversity? I told the reporter very explicitly that it was one of a bunch of reasons that we discussed whether or not we were going to put those pictures back up after the walls were redone. And so, you know, all of our the concerns expressed to us by customers are considered. But this was not the one that, that you know, whatever you want to call it, made the decision happen. It was the fact that we are always getting requests by customers to do something with those pictures. You know, when somebody has a wedding, they don't necessarily want the all of the walls in their room to have these big, huge portraits. Right. See, Nick, and I understand all that. I, I, I get it, and so maybe it's an annoyance. I guess my question, though, is uh, clearly the impetus of the story, based in part apparently on what you said, was that the concerns about diversity was at least a factor in that decision, and now you're telling me that that wasn't a factor? What I'm telling you is it was one of many that were addressed because it they were concerns that were expressed to us, the same as the wedding customers' concerns and the quinceanera customers and the prom customers and some other events, frankly. So it, he focused in on just that one, while we did not focus in on only that one. Do we you think that's a valid that. concern? If, if, let me ask you this, um, would you have taken down the portraits based solely on the complaints from people that, gee, there's a lack of diversity? No. Okay. No. And and as you know, we're working on a response to to this because this reporter really gave us no time. These pictures have been down for months, and he had to do the story yesterday when I wasn't in the office, and he had a a lady. Um, come in and tell them that that's what it was, the only reason. And so they came over here and they wouldn't wait for us to, to really be able to sit down with them and discuss this. So, you know, the answer is no, that wasn't the only reason. No, we wouldn't have made the decision to remove those portraits solely on that. We are also considering when we redo the halls of our Wisconsin room, whether or not we want to put the landscape portraits back up, mm -hmm. because there's a trend in, in the banquet business to not have you know pictures that we choose dominating somebody's venue that they're using for their banquet. Let me ask you this: If the portrait is there, a chance that the presidential portraits are going to go back up? Well, there is. We, we're considering whether or not uh, we want to put up fewer of them, for instance. 
mm-hmm. or whether we want to put covers on them or, you know, so we're looking at a lot of different options. We've even talked about, you know, whether or not it would make sense to put them in the president's lounge, which mm-hmm. is adjacent to that hall. Is one of the ideas under consideration to put up portraits uh, of presidents who have not been to Serb Hall? No. Okay. So at least to that extent, if these presidential portraits go back, it, it's going to be the people that have been there and attended events as opposed to just all the presidents. Correct. Got it. Um, so okay. we, we are not looking. This is not a, a, a let's be politically correct issue. This is a business decision where we want well, but no, but in in, 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 in fairness, well, no, but I understand in, in fairness, but the political correctness was one of the factors. It was one of the complaints well, that I brought to our board as one of many. So it was a, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, that there's other considerations as well, but it was a factor that you considered. Oh, some sure. people were upset. Some people were upset, and, and that's not what, what drove the decision. It was, it was, as I said, more an issue that there were many reasons, many complaints about customers, and people, for instance, that wanted us to pipe and drape the the hall so that they wouldn't see any of the the walls right and 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 you don't feel comfortable discussing who it was or whether there were particular groups that that made that particular complaint no okay our customers are 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 valuable to us and and they should have the right to express concerns just like i'm not going to tell you which of our wedding customers didn't want those pictures up. well well, I, i understand but at the same time i think one of the things that people who hear these stories become questioned about is is it is it the, the squeaky wheel out of a thousand customers is it one or two customers that complain or is it 500 customers that complain and I, th- I think that's what people are curious about but again if you don't want to say you don't have to say nope okay well good enough okay thanks for joining us i appreciate it uh-huh. have sure. a good day yeah you too all right don't go anywhere jeff wagner is back I hit that. I was. I, I okay. So that's their explanation. Their explanation is, well, yes, I, I told that to the reporter, um, and that was a factor, but it wasn't you know, the, the only factor. There were other things. And again, that's that's that that's fine. I guess my question to again the manager, and I mean, I asked him that two or three times, would be, okay, why did you tell that to the reporter from Channel Twelve that you know groups complained about the portraits not representing diversity? If the fact, if it was other things, we you know people complained about the weddings and wanted to take them down. I I I understand that, and it is in fact a business decision. I do think it's interesting to know whether how many people were it was it that actually complained about this for this tip, diff, difficult issue or this particular issue and again if if you want it's your business you don't have to put the portraits up who who cares it's just a question of why you ended up taking them down but i appreciate the general manager calling in this is jeff wagner welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj So very glad to have you with us. Sorry, I, I just see it sounds like damage control to me. See, I understand the story breaks 
And if you want to say, hey, we're taking down these pictures because they're big and they're a pain in the butt. We use this room for weddings, and so we have to cover them up all the time, and, and so it's not worth I, I get it. I, I, I understand that. But then why do you tell the reporter that, yeah, we were getting these complaints, and so you know we, we took them down because people were concerned about diversity if that wasn't a driving factor? So I guess people can decide for themselves. And again, I, I understand if the room, having the pictures up there doesn't make, having the portraits up there isn't consistent with the function of the room. But then why tell reporters that diversity was a consideration or a lack of diversity? Okay, this story broke while I was on vacation. John McCure, I know, talked about it extensively on Friday. It is the story about New Berlin Eisenhower. New Berlin Eisenhower, um, a number of the varsity football players were caught engaging in a hazing thing. What, what I understand happened is, it happened off campus, there was an event, uh, a dinner at a private home. And what happened is, uh, the football players went into like the basement of the home, at which point in time, a lot of the newer players, the new players, the freshmen or the, the first year players in the varsity, they were subjected to what would be described as hazing, where they were paddled um, with a wooden board as hard as they could on the buttocks. I mean, think about the movie Animal House, you know, where you've got the fraternity initiation thing and you've got Niedermeyer. Thank you, sir. May I have another? And they're swatting Kevin Bacon's rear end. Sounds like it was something like that that happened involving these football players that were there. And the, one of the kids went home afterwards, told his parents. Parents contacted the, the school and the school investigated, determined it happened and then imposed suspensions. Because my understanding is the athletic code is very clear and the kids are told very early on that, you know, hazing is not allowed. And and this certainly strikes me as being something that would be classified as hazing. Well, what happened is after the school did its investigation and the school determined that, yes, it did in fact occur and were able to identify who in fact was involved, um, what apparently happened is there were suspensions that were handed out. Um, the people that were involved were suspended for a number of games, five game suspensions for, again, the hazing incident. And in addition to that, I think there might have been an, an in-school suspension or something. Not positive about that. But the they were suspended for multiple games for th- this hazing. Uh, the suspended players, according to WTMJ, um, include team captains and other senior players. Again, yeah, five-game suspension. That was what the penalty was for their involvement in the behavior. No in-school suspensions or anything like that, as far as I know. The latest development is that one of the kids who was apparently involved, he, his parents on his behalf have hired lawyers. They filed a civil suit um, alleging that his various rights have been violated because he was informed that he would be suspended from school for two days and from co-curricular athletic activity for 12 months, and the lawyer alleges that the boys' due processes were rights were violated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right, I, I don't want to talk about the merits of the lawsuit, necessarily. I want to talk about the underlying situation. The underlying situation being, if the school does in fact have a policy against hazing. And if, in fact, this activity occurred, kids brought into the basement of a home and paddled as an initiation right as part of the football team, if that, in fact, happened, right, if that is the fact or are the facts, 
Um, is is it appropriate to suspend these kids for five games? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand I, the lawsuit talks, like I say, about due process and, and all that. And they say the kids' rights were violated. Apparently, didn't get a fair hearing, what, whatever that might be. No, I don't know the merits of that. But I want to talk about the underlying act. Is hazing a big deal? And if these kids did, in fact, do what they are alleged to have done, is it unreasonable to have to suspend them for multiple games? 414-799-1620. We discuss in a moment. So very glad to have you with us. Jim in New Berlin. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Okay, good. If, if these kids, really the, the senior football players, took the new players into the spaceman and hit them as hard as they could on the rear ends with wooden paddles, do they deserve to be suspended from the team? I agree, and all other team sports, they are representing the school and the city, and now they've been a poor representation of such. Well, I mean, some people might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, this stuff has been going on for for forever. What's well, not really sportsmanlike, is my opinion. Um, well, no, it's, it's, it's not. No, thanks to the call. 414-799-1620. I, I, by the way, I, I, I agree completely here. Um, in, in my opinion... Now again, I I don't I don't want to get into the merits of this lawsuit that's filed about you know did did they get enough notice you know did the school prove that the kid really did what what is alleged to have been done Let's put that aside. If in fact you have a, essentially a tradition at this school where the senior players do this to the new players, that, that's hazing. It's hazing, pure and simple. And, and I think. Um, you know, suspending the kids is appropriate. Here's where I think the real challenge comes in, and it is a challenge for the administration. If this has been going on for a while, I wonder, I wonder how it could have been going on without the coaching staff knowing about it. Now, I understand this particular incident allegedly happened off campus that the coaches weren't present. But I don't know. I mean, I've been a part of teams, not football teams, but I've been a part of groups. And and word gets out. People hear about this stuff. And if this has been an ongoing thing at this school where, all right, this is what's been happening for years, it strikes me that it's difficult to believe that kids don't talk. I mean, th- th- look, here, here, here's what happened. I mean, they, they found out about this presumably because some kid went home and told his parents. You know, if this had, in fact, been going on and has been going on for a while at this particular school, I find it difficult to believe that at some point in time, somebody that was involved with the administration or the coaching staff or something didn't hear about this in one shape, form, or another. So to me, this is the real question as well. Not just should the kids be disciplined, but is this something that has been occurring for a long period of time? Did the coaches or anybody on the coaching staff know about it? Did they, in fact, turn a blind eye to that? And again, I I don't know what the answers to those questions are, but if I was at this particular school, New Berlin Eisenhower, and I was part of the administration, that's the question that I would be asking. How long has this been going on? And if it's been going on for any period of time, how was it that the coaches could not know about it? And did, in fact, the coaches not know about it? Inquiring minds want to know. When we come back, does literacy matter anymore? Stick around. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Does literacy matter? Does it matter if people understand grammar? And look, I, I, I understand. Somebody who makes, makes a living you know, speaking in front of an open microphone three hours a day, five days a week. I understand we all make grammatical mistakes and things like that. But I guess the, the larger question is, does it, does it matter whether people are literate or not? Now, we, we talked about this in the past in the context of, for example, math. I, I've told stories, and, and let me see a show of hands, how, how many of you can relate, where you, you come up to somebody who has to perform basic mathematics skills. I, I told this story, and it's because it happened multiple times, at the place where I used to play golf, or I play golf, they used to have, between the ninth and the tenth holes, they used to have a little like hot dog stand that was set up. And they'd have what was typically a high school student, typically, sometimes a college kid, you know, working in the summer, who would be at the hot dog stand. And they, they'd sell you hot dogs and bratwurst and hamburgers, and they had sodas and things like that. And... You would go up there, and let's say, for the sake of argument, the hot dog was four bucks, and the diet coke was three bucks. And I, I, I'm going to oversimplify this, but not too much. You would go to the person, and you would say, "Okay, I want a hot dog and a diet coke. Four bucks, three bucks." And you'd give them, "All right, so let's do the math. Four and three, that's seven. All right." And you would give them a ten dollar bill. And, and I swear, I, I'm not making this up. It, it would flummox them. They'd have to pull out the calculator. 10 minus 4 minus 3, you get $3 change. And if you think I'm making this up, I, I'm not. And it would happen over and over again. And it, and it just and it occurred to me that we are not teaching people you know, basic math skills. And, and maybe there's just a sense that we don't need that anymore. Who cares if you can add and subtract and multiply and divide in your head? We've all got smartphones that have calculators in them. Now, my argument would be, Yes, it is important to be able to have at least fundamental math skills. Now, I'm not talking about the ability to, in your head, multiply 312 times 692. But, I mean, th- this this basic sort of thing. And the story I've always told is, for example, when I'm in, in a store, and I used to do this when I was young and had no money because it was one of those deals where, all right, you, you want, don't want to get up at the checkout aisle and, you know, the it costs more money than you have in your pocket. I always kind of have a running total of the items I'm buying. I can't, when I get to the checkout thing, I couldn't tell you that I exactly had $42.14 worth of goods, but I have a rough idea that, hey, it, it's it's around 40 or 45 bucks. I, I just, I have this running total in my head. So if all of a sudden I see I'm being charged $100, that tells me that there is a mistake somewhere. But if, if you don't have the ability, just in that example, to do just kind of basic math, you, you, you can't ever tell that. You have no clue what something is supposed to be or not. So that's why I have argued that basic math is extremely I- important. Um, some people just disagree because, like I say, we, we've got electronics now and you've got this and you've got computers and all those things. All right. Well, in, in that same vein. There is a story that's out there, and, and actually there's a story, and then there's a story within the story. Um, WISN Channel 12 had this story the other night, and I, I have a link to it. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 and we've got a lot of stuff up on today's, uh, on today's Twitter feed. But, but here's what happened. There, there is a Boston market. You know Boston market? They sell chicken and things like that. There's a Boston market 
um, on Port Washington Road and Silver Spring. Right? I used to, when I lived in Whitefish Bay, we would go over there from time to time. All right, so the story on Channel 12 the other day, Boston Market evacuated for elevated levels of carbon monoxide. North Shore Fire Department says four people were treated on the scene, two rushed to the hospital. Apparently, what happened during the story is about 4 o'clock on Sunday, they reported that there was some sort of um, carbon, that there was carbon monoxide in the restaurant. It was initially called a gas leak. Um, employees were here. They had to be evacuated. Investigators said an oven hood wasn't venting properly. Okay, so that that's the story. All right, fine. They have to evacuate. That's not the interesting aspect of the story to me, because in the Channel 12 report, they have a hand. They have a picture of the handwritten sign that was placed on the front door of of the Boston Market while this was going on. And again, I, I've got a link to this at Jeff Wagner 620. But the handwritten sign, so, okay, it's you, you've got this gas leak problem or whatever, place has to be evacuated. The handwritten sign says, and I quote, Sorry, we close due D.O. to gas leak. Seven words. Sorry, we close due D.O. to, to gas leak. Now, in, in those seven words... Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to overly obsess about this, but it, it's, I mean, I'll, I'll leave it to the English teachers to figure out, you know, how, how many grammatical errors they are, starting with, you know, do is D-U-E as opposed to do. Sorry, you know, we close due to gas leak. You could write that sentence a number of ways, but but this isn't the way to write it. At the same time, it it conveys the general thought. There's a gas leak, or at least what they perceive to be a gas leak. It is closed. And they are sorry if you came wanting to buy chicken that you're not going to be able to do it. So those are the three messages. We're sorry we're closed. There is, and the reason we are cl- we're closed, we're sorry about it, and it's due to a gas leak. But they write it, sorry, we close, due, D-O, to gas leak. Um, again, a grammatical nightmare, but an accurate way of expressing what has gone on. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Should we care? And I want to talk about the big picture here, not necessarily just just the one sign, because my my guess is that's probably representative of what you would see a, a lot of times. You know, you... It's not just grammatically incorrect. You've got the words misspelled, all those types of things. Does it matter... Does that matter? Should we care about that? Should we can be concerned about it? Or given the fact that the message conveyed what was going on, is that enough? Should we care about whether, you know, somebody can, you know, subtract four and three from ten and, and come up to with the answer of three? You know, when they've got calculators that they can use. Should we care if somebody's, you know, handwriting a sign expressing the fact that the restaurant is closed because there's a gas leak? Should we care if, I don't know, the, the grammar's bad, the spelling's bad? Because we all understand what it means. Does it matter? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. And I am curious. I mean, again, it it, it conveys that the message is a, the message is there. They have conveyed the message. Should we care about the way they did it? 
414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. You don't expect me to climb that, do you? This is Jeff Wagner. He is not a home improvement expert. So do you tune a furnace just like you tune a piano? Lucky for him and you, he does know a lot of home improvement experts who give tips and tricks to get all your fall maintenance and renovation projects done before winter. Weather stripping sounds like something they do in hot southern states. Jeff Wagner's Home Improvement Showcase, sponsored by Serta Pro Painters, Hometown Windows and Doors, and The Home Market. Hey, now, over the last couple years, you have helped build MyPillow into the amazing company that it is today. Now, Mike Lindell, he's the inventor and CEO of MyPillow. He wants to give back to you, my listeners. Now, I've been telling you about MyPillow for a couple years now. I absolutely love it. I love this trip to Europe that we just got back from, but I really miss the MyPillow brand pillow that I sleep on. Well, here's the deal. Right now, they are giving you deep discounts on my pillows, on mattress toppers, on bed sheets, and lots, lots more. For example, the body pillow is regularly eighty nine ninety nine, but with the promo code Wagner, it's only twenty nine ninety nine. And this is huge. When you pre-order Mike Lindell's book, your entire order ships free. That's right, your entire order. Remember, all my pillow products come with a sixty day money back guarantee and a ten year warranty. So just go to mypillow.com, click on the new radio listener specials. It doesn't mean for new listeners, it means these are new radio listener specials, and you can get deep discounts on all my pillow products, including the body pillow, for only twenty four for only twenty nine ninety nine. And don't forget when you pre order Mike's book, your entire order ships free. Mypillow.com. Enter the promo code Wagner or call eight hundred nine five three forty one sixty three for these great radio specials. When shopping for health insurance, it can be intimidating, especially with Medicare plans. But we're here to help. Hi, I'm Corrine Dykus-Johnson, President and CEO of Network Health, a Wisconsin company with over 35 years of experience helping people with their health plan needs. We have Medicare Advantage plans with premiums as low as $0 per month and benefits that include medical and drug coverage, travel coverage, doctor visits as low as $5, $0 lab visits, and $0 generic drugs. Plus, you'll have access to a personal concierge customer service team right here in Wisconsin. So call today at 800-983-7587 or ask your agent about Network Health, where you're more than a Medicare member. Network Health Medicare Advantage plans include MSA, HMO, and PPO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Network Health Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. Interesting text, um, a lot of interesting texts from listeners, but, but here's one. Jeff, I think there's a couple of things going on, including growing lack of skills in formal spoken and written English in the general population, perhaps exacerbated, I love that word, by the use of texting and tweeting shortcuts, and expediency in getting the sign made while promptly exiting. It's the reality of today's world. Like it or not, English teachers must be in dismay. 414-799-1620. I mean, and, and, and that's it. The sign grammatically awful, but it did convey what the business was trying to convey. Should we care about it? Liz in Grafton. Liz, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Liz. Hi. Um, I would be that person that writes on that sign the correct spelling. Right. It bothers me. Um, It always has. I'm a huge grammar freak. I correct my three-year-old son. I don't know if I should be at this point, but it's important to me, and it just, it doesn't seem to bother enough people and we just accept the 
the errors, the misspellings, the mispronunciations. Well, I mean, it, it is interesting to me. Now, again, I, I, I don't I, I want to move to a broader discussion than just the, just the sign. But it, it is amazing to me how many people that you run into just don't know basic spelling. And I'm not and I'm not talking about like really complicated words and stuff, but just, you know, don't understand, you know, the difference between D.U.E. and D.O. or don't understand, you know, when you use T.O. versus T.O.O. Yeah. all. all and I guess I guess the question is, you know, why do you think it matters? I mean, again, if you're if you're conveying the idea, if people can understand the idea, does it matter if it's if there's all these misspellings that are there? I guess it it matters to me, but maybe I'm a little bit too much of a perfectionist, and I guess I have to think too. Why, if everybody understands the message and it doesn't bother anyone else? I mean, I've created a little risk with my husband even he's like you know what i was saying you don't have to always correct me and right. i guess he has a point too i but to me it's important right now thanks see i guess i i think it's important too and again i want to i want to move i'm using the sign as, as a launching point for kind of that larger discussion just because and look we, we all make grammatical mistakes believe me i hear from a lot of retired english teachers who say jeff you're supposed to say me not i and, and, and they're right I, I understand this um, and and also, I think when we're texting and all, sometimes the spell check doesn't catch stuff, or in your in the speed to try to post something or whatever, you know, there's a misspelling. But most of the times, I think people understand and know that there's a misspelling. I, I think what's scary is sometimes you find folks who just ha- have no clue; they just don't know how to spell. And maybe you can get through. May- maybe you can get through life nowadays not knowing that you know you subtract three and four from 10 and and the remainder is three maybe maybe you can get through life doing that maybe you can get through life not knowing how to spell stuff or not knowing proper grammar and all but doesn't it make it more difficult i mean I, i guess i care about it too simply because i am concerned that we are raising generations of people who are functionally illiterate which means that they're they're going to have trouble reading, they're going to have trouble writing, they're going to have trouble communicating and actually I, I do think it is perhaps made a little bit worse by the fact that you know we, we now live in the Twitter culture and you know we live in this thing where we've got all the different expressions you know in social media and stuff uh, let's talk to Jim in Waukesha Jim you're on WTMJ Hey, thanks, thanks a lot Jeff, Hi, Jim. Uh, a little bit of a pet peeve for myself and my wife and I as well but kind of moving to the broader scope it seems to me that I see these things, and to me, it's a reflection on my business. So if I have employees that are doing this, they can't tell the difference between me and I, then and then. Um, I saw a sign spray-painted on a building for the hurricane on a Denny's that said, we're W-E-R-E, open. And I'm thinking, this is a reflection on the professionals of my business, on yeah. the financial sector. I'm going to ask you for all kinds of information, and if I can't communicate that we have intelligence, why do I trust you to handle my finances? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm trying to picture. I, I don't. I, in another life, I, I was involved in like hiring decisions and stuff, and I don't see resumes anymore. My guess, Jim, is the people that work in human resources or make hiring decisions. We could do an entire hour talking to them about grammar and spelling and things like that of what comes in in resumes or applications for jobs. And I guess, I mean, I'm thinking if I'm an employer and I get a resume or I get an application and it's riddled with grammatical errors, and I'm not talking about a, a you know, a, a typographical error. I'm talking about, you know, 
the, the fact that clearly the person you know, just has real issues with the English language. I, I mean, who's going to hire them? Well, but it also shows the care that someone's putting into even the application process. Right. I, I get a personal financial statement from someone who filled it out in hand, and it has scratches. It doesn't add up. They put down a mortgage payment instead of how much their mortgage amount outstanding is. And I'm thinking, well, you want me to loan you money. You're, <laughs> not, you're not portraying literacy to me on either side. I would not interview to be my dishwasher, <laughs> much less give you a loan for your new restaurant. Right. No, I, I mean, thanks for calling. See, I, I think that's I, – I agree. That's why I think, you know, in the big picture – it matters. And again, I'm not obsessive about this because I, I am an offender. I freely admit that. But at the same time, like I say, a lot of times if I post something and I look and I thought, oh, okay, I, I was in a hurry to do this and I misspelled that word or there, there's an incorrect clause or something that's there, at least I'm able to recognize it, know that I, I, I did it. I, I think a lot of times when you see this stuff happening, the people just, it's not because they're in a hurry. It's because they either don't know or don't care or don't know and don't care. Scott on the South Side. Hi, Scott. You're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Yes, sir. Yes, it absolutely matters. Uh, and you made the point. We are raising a, a generation of functional, illiterate children. Um, I used to own a, uh, a sub shop in, in the city limits, and the, the the stacks of applications I would get, it, it just it depressed me because you could look at this and you could say to your, you're saying to yourself, all these kids are, that's all they're, they're that's all they're going to be trained to do is to make, make sandwiches. Um, you know, that's, that's all they can comprehend and they can't put it down on a simple application. Uh, it is sad and we, we do have to hold, we do have to raise a light to that, yeah. you know, to that, uh, to that photograph, um, and and the bigger problem that's out there. Uh, that is, yeah. I, I mean, I seriously, right? I seriously wonder how many high school kids, and I don't mean to sound like that old man, you know, get off my lawn, kids, but I, I wonder how many high school kids are graduate graduating from high school today who you know lack basic math skills and are for all intents and purposes functionally illiterate by you know not not understanding you know how you spell different words all those different things we went to and my guess yeah. is it's probably a shockingly high number it is a shockingly high number i know the number but it is a shockingly high number and that that's on the the public uh, education uh, state public education webpage yeah. called wise dash it is a shockingly high number. Yeah, no, thanks Thanks the call. And, and that, of course, again, it's it's the larger point. And, and it's not like picking on somebody that wrote a sign when they're trying to, you know, get, get out of a business, you know, when there's carbon monoxide in it or something like that. It's just kind of the larger issue that's out there. And, and I think it is it is fair to say, okay, we, we, we have the right to certain expectations. And I understand that we're swimming upstream sometimes because we live in the Internet world and everybody uses acronyms and everybody uses abbreviations for things. And if the idea is if you're conveying the message, who really cares, you know, whether or not, you know, you're, you're technically accurate and don't obsess about that. But at the same time, I, I do think I do think it matters. Those type of details matter. And if if you sound like you're functionally illiterate, you're you're going to be limiting your options. That is just the reality. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
So very glad to have you with us. I think I came back from Europe in a mood, huh, Gru? It's just, it's just, well, it's just all this insanity that's kind of out there. Okay, speaking of, of which, this story broke last week, but I, I want to talk to you about it from my perspective. Now, I... I spent most of my life living in Milwaukee County. Now I, I no longer live in, in Milwaukee County. The Milwaukee County announced last week that what the leaders would like to do is go to the voters of Milwaukee County and ask for permission to increase the Milwaukee County sales tax from where it currently is, which is 0.5% to um, 1.5%. So in other words, a 1% raise, which is significant. The estimates are that if this were to happen, that additional sales tax would result in people who purchase things in Milwaukee County, not just people who live in Milwaukee County, but anybody who purchases something in Milwaukee County, it would raise, they estimate, about $160 million. So we're, we're talking about big money here. You might say, oh, it's 1%. What difference does it make? It, it's big money, you know, $160 million. And the idea is they're going to take the money and they're going to use it for all sorts of wonderful things to improve the quality of life. What If this were to be approved... Um, what this would mean is the sales tax in Milwaukee County would be 6.5%. Um, there's a 5% state, state sales tax, and then you'd have the 1.5% county sales tax added on to it. For small purchases, you probably wouldn't notice it. You know, it, it you know it adds a couple pennies to a cup of coffee or something like that. For larger purchases, you you most certainly would. I mean, you if I'm a car dealer, for example, in Milwaukee County, I, I'm like, wait a second here. You know, if it does, if the county sales tax applies to that, and automatically it's going to increase, you know, one percent. You know, when you're talking about, I don't know, a twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollar car. Well, yeah, you, you've got a, a different dynamic that's going there. But for big ticker purchases, it makes a, a, a difference. Smaller purchases, you're probably not going to know it. But collectively, it's going to raise a ton of money. It is a substantial tax increase. Now, what has to happen before this can be put to the voters of Milwaukee County, the legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, the legislature has to sign off on it. Not sign off on the sales tax increase, but sign off on the binding referendum. The way the law works is the legislature has to give the county permission to go ahead and allow the county residents to decide. Now, the way the story is being pitched right now is that that's, that's a tough sell, that you have lots of Republican legislators um, including many, many, many who, who don't represent any parts of Milwaukee County who take the position that they didn't go to Madison to raise people's taxes and they're, they're not inclined to go along with this. At the same time, this is, I mean, in many respects, it, it's the ultimate, you know, local control. If people in Milwaukee County decide that, yes, we want to do this, Shouldn't they be allowed to? Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, I understand that this affects people all across the state who would come to shop in Milwaukee County because you'd have to pay the extra tax. But the bottom line is it's going to affect people who live in Milwaukee County, you know, most directly because that's where you live and presumably that's where you shop and things like that. 
I take no, well, actually, I do take a position on the merits of this. If I lived in Milwaukee County and it was a binding referendum, I would not only vote no, but I would vote hell no. But, but, but that's just the vote. What I want to talk about is whether or not the matter should be put to a vote. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I, I, you know, if the people who live in Milwaukee County want to vote to raise their sales tax, understanding that, you know, it, it's going to be a chunk of dough that's going to be coming out of their pockets on a regular basis, $160 million per year, not all of which is going to come from Milwaukee County residents, but a, a good chunk will. And if they want to raise their taxes, shouldn't we at least allow them to make that decision? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And here is one where I perhaps break from some of my friends, my Republican friends in Madison. I, I guess just like we allow local school districts to have referendums on whether or not people want to increase their property tax to blow spending limits, I don't know. I, I think if people who live in Milwaukee County want to vote to pay for higher sales taxes, I actually think they should have the right to do it. Not saying I would vote yes. I'm just saying I, I don't I think I think this should go to a vote. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let the people decide. Am I right or wrong? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss in just a minute. And I would be particularly interested if you live in Milwaukee County. Do you think you should have the opportunity to vote on this, or should people in Madison, or legislators in Eau Claire, or legislators in La Crosse, or legislators in Green Bay be telling you no? You you can't decide on this. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to take your calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. As several of you have pointed out, my, my car example is, is bad because you, you pay your tax in the car where you live, not where the dealer is. So, okay, if I was a, if I sold expensive big screen televisions or if I sold high end furniture, I would be opposing this in Milwaukee County because, hey, it's going to drive business to Waukesha or Ozaki or Racine County or whatever. But that's not the, the issue. The issue isn't should you vote for it or not. It's should you be able to vote for it. And I guess my thinking is, is yeah. Here's a text. Jeff, I live in Milwaukee County. The state should let the county vote. I would vote. Heck no. All right. Let's start with Dennis on the west side. Dennis, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Dennis. Um, I agree with you completely. Milwaukee County residents should be given the opportunity to vote. Uh, Republicans are always espousing local control, local control, yet they deny Milwaukee County, the residents, the ability to vote on this. And um, I read somewhere that Wisconsin Dells voters were given an opportunity yeah. by the legislature to vote on a sales tax in their area. So I don't know why Milwaukee County residents shouldn't be given an opportunity as well. And you brought up the example of school districts before. I don't have any statistics, but it sure seems to me that at least three quarters, if not more, of the school district referendums have passed. Certainly recently, certainly in the last couple of years, yes. Yeah. And, and then a final comment. <laughs> I'm I'm going to be 70 years old, and, and I, what I've deciphered is that 
citizens want a whole plethora of services, they just aren't willing to pay for them. Yeah, no, <laughs> Dennis, I, I, I agree with you completely. Um, here's a text. I, I live in Brown Deer. I would like the chance to vote on the tax. I might be willing to consider a tax depending on how they plan to use the revenue. And, and again, that's... I, I, by saying what I am saying, again, I want to be real clear here. I am not endorsing it. If I still lived in Milwaukee County, my guess is I would probably vote no on that. But that, that's just kind of my guess. But that's, it's a binding referendum. Let Milwaukee County decide. And again, I appreciate that it doesn't just affect people in Milwaukee County, because if you live in Ozaki County or Waukesha and you, you come down to Milwaukee County and you purchase something, this would then affect you. It is something I think voters in Milwaukee County, particularly businesses, need to consider because, again, for the larger ticket items, you're creating an incentive not to purchase something in Milwaukee County, but but maybe that that's up to the that's a case for the businesses to make, saying, "Hey, look, you're you're going to put us out of business. You're going to create a tax island that's around here, and and maybe people will buy it, or maybe they won't." But I, I am I'm one of these guys on local control. Now I do think that there's some things that Madison should should govern, but I, I want to be consistent here. If you've been a regular listener, I'm one of these guys that doesn't think that there should be a state law, for example. That says that absent certain circumstances, school can't start before September 1st. I think that that should be a matter of local control. In some school districts, it might make eminent sense. You don't want to do that. In other school districts, maybe because of the unique nature of the school district, you, you know, you want to start in mid-August. All right. I think it's a matter of local control. And I guess this is the same sort of thing. Sandy in Milwaukee. Sandy, you're on WTMJ. Well, you covered quite a few of my thoughts. I do agree we should have the right to vote because when you think about it, look at the driver's situation as far as licensing. Look what Milwaukee County pays and what everybody outside of Milwaukee County pays as far as licensing. Milwaukee County seems to be getting punished, and people who buy large-ticket items they don't have to purchase them in Milwaukee County. They right. can go elsewhere and not have to pay that tax. Right, and I think they will as a practical matter, but, you know, that's, that, that's something, that is something for the voters to decide. Is the risk of, I don't know, stores moving out of Milwaukee County or relocating because of that tax, is that, is that enough of a realistic concern to vote? No, I, I, people should decide. Let them vote. Right. They should definitely think it through very carefully how it can really cost them. Yeah, exactly. No, thanks. And again, that, 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 that's my only point on all this. L- let people decide. And, and I understand that maybe some of my, again, my, my friends who are Republicans in Madison, they're saying, well, no, we didn't get sent here to raise taxes. Well, my argument would be you're not raising taxes. You're simply saying to the people that live in Milwaukee County, if you want to raise your taxes, you know, go, you know, go ahead and, and do it. And then, you know, let Chris Abley and let the Milwaukee County Board and none of whom, at least the county board in particular, have been particularly good stewards of taxpayer dollars over the year. Let them convince you that, you know, you, you can trust them this time. Now, that's going to take, in my opinion, a lot of convincing, but maybe they should have the right to do it. Don in Milwaukee. Don, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Don. My thoughts on this are they should give us a chance to vote on it, and I would vote for it. Reason being, the Milwaukee County, every time they want to raise money, they always put up the burden on property owners or automobile owners. They always, they're always the two uh, parts of the population attacked. So I think they should put the uh, 
tax on so that they can spread it out across the whole population. Well, no, thank it, it, thanks for calling. And, and again, that's you know that's the the thing. You know, when you talk about the sales tax, the sales tax gets criticized because it is what they call regressive. That is, it it, it affects. It, it it doesn't matter what your income level is. Everybody pays that that same level of sales tax, as opposed to the income taxes, which are progressive, meaning you pay higher rates the more money that you end up making. So that I mean that's another valid argument against it. If the legislature gives the go ahead, my guess is I would be arguing against voting for what I consider to be a massive sales tax increase for voters of Milwaukee County. Again, I, since I don't live in Milwaukee County anymore, it, it's it's more of a theoretical sort of argument, and it, it has some practical effect because, yeah, there's times that I buy big-ticket items, and maybe that will affect some of the purchasing decisions. But I guess I, I come back to the idea of local control, which is typically what conservatives are all about. If if Milwaukee – remember the famous thing when we were talking about the Miller Park sales tax, and Tommy Thompson's up, I think, in Door County, and he makes the famous remarks. Hey, you know, it, it, it's you know, it's a five county sales tax region. It doesn't affect us up here. You know, if, if you know, stick it to Milwaukee. And, and I think he ended up regretting th- those remarks. But my remark comment would be: if the if the voters and the taxpayers in Milwaukee County want to stick it to themselves, who is the legislature in Madison to tell them no? This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Glad to have you with us. All right. As a general rule, casual rules the day when it comes to going out. There, there. And we've talked about this before. There was a time when... I don't know, you, you couldn't go to nice restaurants wearing blue jeans, or you, you had to wear suits. There was a time when people dressed up to go to church. Th- those time, There's a time when people dressed up to fly on airplanes. Those times, for better or for worse, are, are largely gone. Um, for example, on this on this river cruise that we did last week, I mean, there used to be a time where people, you know, if you went cruising, you know, you you dress for dinner. You you people would bring tuxedos for the captain's dinner and things like that. Th- those days are largely gone. I mean, the, the cruise ship that I was on, the river cruise ship, I mean, it, it's it's a high end cruise, and, and even at that, they had you know one night where they said you know they they wanted gentlemen to wear sport coats. There was a introductory dinner, and then there was a captain's thing at the end. But but other than that, and even that, that was kind of like a business casual thing, and they weren't going to throw you out if you, they weren't going to throw you out if you didn't show up dressed like dressed appropriately. But pretty much everybody did. But it's just we've gotten more and more casual. And like I say, you can argue whether that's a good thing or not. From my perspective, um, you know, I, I dressed up in suits, you know, every day of my working life, and so I, I, you know, I live in blue jeans and stuff like that nowadays. So all right. But but that's not to say that businesses don't have a right to try to say, okay, we, we expect something better. We're trying to create a certain atmosphere. Now, I bring this up because there, there's a new restaurant, and it, it's opening in Baltimore, and it's part of a larger restaurant chain and the restaurant that they're opening in baltimore they have a number of restaurants the owners they they have them in uh, dc as well and it's it's a crab house in baltimore it's called chop tank all right so they're opening in this neighborhood and as part of their opening 
they they have a sign that describes the dress code. Here's what the dress code is. It says strictly prohibited, excessively baggy clothing. Pants must be worn at the waist, no shorts below the knee. Strictly prohibited, offensive, vulgar, or inappropriate attire. Athletic attire, no sweats or gym clothes. Jerseys, except on Ravens-Orioles game days. You know, it's Baltimore, so Baltimore Ravens, Baltimore Orioles. But otherwise, you know, no, no jerseys. No brimless headgear. That means like bandanas, beanies, etc. No backwards or sideways hats. All hats must be worn, worn forward. No work or construction boots. No sunglasses after dark. Okay, so that, that's their dress code. Now, predict is strictly prohibited. And this is, is not inconsistent with the dress code that this, this restaurant chain has for other different types of restaurants that they have throughout the area. So they post that, and that they, this is what you know we want. Well, immediately, this thing now goes viral. And I have a story that was in the Washington Post. I have a story in front of me in the um, Baltimore Sun and a number of other things as well, where as soon as they post this, People immediately become appalled, and the allegation is that this dress code is is racist, and that this this business has no right to tell people, "Hey, if you want to wear a bandana, you can't do that. If you want to, uh, you know, wear baggy clothing, you shouldn't do that." And the argument is. I guess presumably that this is just a coded effort to try to keep persons of color out of the restaurant because apparently the assumption is that persons of color are more likely to, I don't know, wear the excessively baggy clothing or the brimless headgear or the backwards or sideways hats. I guess that's the assumption that the objection is premised on. So let us discuss this. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This restaurant has its dress code. The people, and it's just open, so there's not a situation where people are saying, well, you know, they let white people in with this type of clothing and they keep black people out. The argument is this dress code as written is inherently racist and the business should not be allowed to do it. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Well, you know, what do you think? Should a restaurant have a right to impose a dress code where they say, you know, we, we don't want people coming in in sweatpants. We don't want people coming in, you know, with the, with the bandanas. We don't want people wearing construction boots. That's not the atmosphere that we are trying to convey. Should a business have a right to do that? And if they do it, is it primarily racist? 414-799-1620, we discuss in just a moment. And would you like perhaps to go to a place like that we discuss you're listening to jeff wagner on wtmj 414-799-1620 jeff i can find ten thousand photos on the internet of people not of color um aka white people wearing those exact clothes the restaurant is not a fan of urban culture there is a distinct difference a business has a right to a dress code um and then cites examples of some restaurants that have um those 
Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff, I believe George W. Bush coined the phrase soft bigotry of low expectations. As long as the dress code is applied evenly and fairly, the business should have every right to do so. Jeff, I work for a liquor distributor. 90% of the bars in downtown Milwaukee have this same type of sign up at their doors. Bars and restaurants have the right to set certain expectations. 414-799-1620. Look, I, I totally agree with that. And again, I understand that when you, I, first of all, I, I, I think it's an almost racist assumption to say that, oh, we, we are going to assume that it's only persons of color, for example, who are going to be showing up in baggy pants or with the bandanas or, you know, wh- whatever. I mean, I, I think, I think there is a certain racist assumption in assuming that that, that's what people, that's what people of a certain race or whatever are going to wear. But here's the bottom line. Businesses, I think, have a right to decide what sort of atmosphere they are trying to create in their restaurant, understanding that, okay, it may cause them to lose certain amounts of business. I, I belong I belong to a club, and at the club, they have a dress code for the dining room, all right, which means that, you know, when, when we go there for dinner, I, I, I got to lose the blue jeans. You know, I, I put on a pair of dress pants and sometimes I, you know, wear a sport coat or, or whatever. But but that's that's the rules. And, and candidly, I, it's it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, you know, if you want a nice dining experience, you know, sometimes it, it's nice to get at least a little bit dressed up. And I certainly appreciate that if a business is you know, trying to cultivate a particular atmosphere. I understand why they don't want people with the pants down around, you know, their butts or their ankles, regardless of whether they're white, black, brown, or green, or why they don't want the bandanas if they're trying to create a certain image for a certain upscale type of thing. Maybe it'll work, maybe it'll not. But as long as they have, as long as they enforce it across the board, I, I this assumption that it's automatically racist. I think it is. It's kind of like the soft bigotry of low expectations. Trish on the South Side. Hi, Trish. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Uh, I worked in supper clubs and good steakhouses for 51 years, and saw some outfits on holidays that were so disgusting. <laughs> but there was nothing on the front door that said they couldn't come in that way, so they did. Right. And they should have had a sign on the front door because, I'd say New Year's Eve, for instance, a couple come in in T-shirts and jeans, and the, the gentleman had on a T-shirt that said, Pimp. <laughs> I thought that was a nice outfit for New Year's Eve. You know? well, I'm glad that's all it said, Trish, because I, I was actually my, my hand was reaching for our, our dump button here. So I'm, th- I thank you that that is all that that said. I, immediately I just had this, what is she going to say? But, yeah. but, but yeah, but I mean, I think... I, again, to the point, there, there's certain atmosphere that you know is is created by the clothing of of patrons, and you know, and, and a business gets to decide. Look, you, you know, some businesses might decide, hey, you know, we don't care if you're in there and you got the pants that are hanging down around your ankles and you've got the bandanas. And to which I would say, go with God. If that's the kind of business, if if that's the clientele and the look that you want, that's fine. But if you're trying to set up an upscale upscale restaurant or supper club, and you want you, you want to go after people who are going to dress up a little bit? I think you have the right to do that, too. Absolutely. Got it. Um, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. 414-799-1620. Jeff, I believe a restaurant has a right to do this. If you went to a fine steakhouse and showed up in pajamas, you would be turned away. I'm sure this code is instituted because of past problems with certain people. Um, there are other places that those folks can eat. I, I, I actually think it's... 
I, I think it may be even be simpler. And I don't know if it's past, I don't know if it's past problems. I think it's more like, and look, I've, I've never owned a restaurant, never run a restaurant, but I, I think it's, it's probably, if I was an investor in a restaurant, and somebody was coming to me and saying, hey, Jeff, we want you to put money into this restaurant, and here is our concept. My first question would be, okay, what sort of dining experience are, are we looking at? Are we talking about, you know, a, a casual family-oriented place? Are we talking about a bar with bar food where you're going to have ball games? Are we going to be talking about fine dining? You know, what, what, what is the market? Who are we looking for? Are we going to be talking about people who, you know, are going to be buying stuff and everything on the menu is less than 10 bucks? Are we going to be going for people who and everything under, on the menu is 30 bucks and over? I mean, what, what is the environment we are trying to create? And then you, you picture, you know, who, who your customers are going to be and, and then you go accordingly. But this idea that, oh, you can't have a dress code because somebody's going to be offended or it's inherently racist. Well, I'm sorry, I, I don't buy it. If they implement the dress code and it turns out that you've got white people that are coming in with the baggy pants and they're letting them in and they're saying no to black people, that is, of course, a different story. But the dress code itself, sorry, I, I have no problem with that at all. And, and actually, I mean, I think sometimes maybe restaurants would be better served if you're trying to create that sort of air of exclusivity if, if you did enforce the, the dress code, um, if you have one. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, what did you think was going to happen? You perhaps have heard that the General Motors, uh, General Motors shut down um, because a number of workers went out on strike. What happened is... General Motors had a four-year labor contract. It expired on Saturday. And as soon as it expired, the UAW, um, they, they walked out on, on General Motors. And there's a lot of there, there's theories out there that some of the union leaders are under federal corruption investigations, and this is a distraction. But, but here, here's the bottom line. Um, last year, GM made $11 billion in profits. They paid workers $10,750 each in profit-sharing programs. The average hourly employee at GM earns $90,000 annually and pays 3% of health care costs. Gru, would you like to guess at what the average employee in the private sector, what percent they pay towards their average health care costs? Take a guess. I would I would have no idea. All right. Well, that's why I'm here. 30%. So, and again, we're, we're talking averages, but the average employee in the private sector, average person pays 30% of their health care costs. GM workers pay 3%, which, by the way, is one of the reasons, and the Wall Street Journal points this out in editorial, while Bernie Sanders is having a tough time um, selling blue-collar workers that under his Medicare for All plan that they'll actually pay less than they pay now. So, again, it's look, people who work on these auto lines, it's hard work, but it's ninety grand a year. Last year they got a profit-sharing incentive of ten grand a year. The benefits, what they pay, they only pay a fraction of what most people pay. All right, so they're, they're on strike. The, the, it's kind of nebulous as to what they want. As near as I can figure out, the big reason they went out on strike is because they, they want to 
do away with this two-tier system that the General Motors has where they hire temporary workers um, under certain circumstances and they pay them less than the regular unionized workers. GM uh, says we, we need these temporary workers because we need the flexibility um, to, to deal with this thing. We need more production and stuff. So that appears to be the biggest hang-up. All right, so you, you've got this... The, the strike that is going on, and you know, you you can decide who's right and who's wrong. I I just don't know enough about it to take a particular position. But here's what is interesting, and what I want to discuss with you: um, General Motors, as soon as the employees went on strike and walked off the job, General Motors has dropped the health care plans for tens of thousands of its striking workers. So. You know, right now, for example, I, I get health insurance through Good Karma Brands. Thank you very much. And, you know, when I stop working for Good Karma Brands, okay, the, the health insurance ceases. Now, what can happen is I, I'm eligible under COBRA and stuff to, to jump on, but, you know, when I stop working, it ceases. When these workers went out on strike, General Motors dropped the health care plans, which means they're, they're, on, they're now on their own. Now, they can, again, they're eligible for COBRA, um, which means that they or the UAW or somebody is going to have to pay that, and it's a substantial chunk of change. You know, if you've ever been on COBRA, you know, you know that you're now paying everything, and generally speaking, a lot of times it ends up being sticker shock for folks who have no idea really how much their company is paying towards their health insurance, and that's just, that's just a reality. People just don't recognize, you know, what costs health care insurance are. But in any event, General Motors has said, boom, we're done. No, as long as you're out on strike, we are not paying your health insurance benefits anymore. You're off the health care plan. And the workers are screaming bloody murder that General Motors has done this. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Workers walked out, effectively shutting down production. General Motors responded by saying, fine, you're not working any longer. Boom, you're off the health insurance plan. You're on your own. All right, is that an unreasonable position for GM to take? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in just a moment. Um, but, you know, what What do you think? I mean, they, they walked out, they're not working, and General Motors ended the health insurance coverage. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. 414-799-1620. Julie in Kenosha. Hi, Julie. Hi, thanks for taking my call, sure. Jeff. I just feel strongly that um, General Motors has the right. They have the right to withdraw uh, health care benefits from their workers who are striking. And um, to be honest, as an aside, uh I really feel like unions are kind of a thing of the past. I mean, we have labor laws installed in this country. I mean, unions were started because kids were working in factories and people were working, you know, 20 hours a day. And I mean, a lot of times these unions are strong-arming companies yeah. into uh, giving their employees benefits that none of us else have. 
Well, you know, and again, I, I you know, I, I mean, I, I don't want to use this as a as a union bashing segment because that's not really my intent. But I, I'm kind of with you, Julie. If I look, if I decide tomorrow, or anybody decides tomorrow that you get mad at your boss or you're not happy and and you walk off the job, well, I, I mean, there, there's going to be consequences for that. Your boss isn't going to continue to pay you a salary for the work that you're not doing, and you know, the boss isn't going to pay you benefits for the work that you're not doing, and that's just it. it I guess it comes with the territory, and and I, I sometimes companies don't do this, but I I'm not surprised, and I'm not. I'm not sympathetic to the workers. They they had to know that this was one of the risks they took when they decided to walk off the job. Right. It's a work benefit, and if you're not working, why should the company give right. you benefits? Exactly. No, thanks. Now, and again, they're, they're eligible. We're, it gets a little bit tricky here because, all right, what's going to happen is now that they've been terminated, that, that they're, it's been cut off, they're going to have to reapply for benefits. But they're, they're eligible under COBRA. But but keep in mind, under COBRA, you got to pay the whole you got to pay the whole freight for your benefits. So you can keep your benefits, but you got to pay. They're going to have to pay you know an extra ninety seven percent because GM picks up all but three percent. So it's going to be sticker shock. My understanding is the United Auto Workers UAW has has a, out of their strike fund. They'll pay towards COBRA. But my guess is the employees, the striking employees, are going to have to pay a. a a much bigger chunk than they already pay. That's just my guess as to how it works out. They're not going to be without health insurance, but I, candidly, if I were in the union, and this this would be one of the factors. Now, maybe for some of the union workers, they've got a spouse or whatever, and they're covered under their program. I, I doubt it. But, you know, this would be one of the questions that I would be asking before the strike vote, which would be, okay, if we go out on strike and GM terminates the health insurance coverage how much is that going to cost us out of pocket? That would have been a relevant factor for me in deciding to go out on strike or not. But given the fact that they've gone out on strike, I don't expect GM to continue to pay their their benefits. Should GM be given a vacation for the time that they're on strike? Hell no. Let's talk to Mike in Menominee Falls. Hi, Mike. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi. I just want to say that I fully agree with what GM's doing. I, uh, I'm just listening to what you told in terms of Average is kind of like 90000 a year. They're only paying 3%. You know, it's like, oh, boy, you guys, why are you going on strike? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, look, and again, I, I don't know. Maybe they have a valid reason. I, I don't. I, I just don't know enough about it to take a position one way or the other. But I do know that... All right, actions have consequences. I mean, you you know you know, Mike, you you walk in and you tell your boss, you know, what you think of him, you know, as a person and a member of the human race, and he doesn't like it. Well, maybe there can be some bad things that happen. You know, that's just the reality of it. And you you walk off the job. Well, they're not going to. I don't think they have an obligation to continue to pay you benefits. Exactly. No. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, thanks. I, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm I'm a parent. I'm a little bit surprised that. People are surprised at this. To me, again, it's just, it's kind of like the, the, the basic, okay, reaction. You know, you react one way and, you know, that, that's how other people are going to react. I, I would think that if this is an issue, and it, it certainly would be for me, and my guess is it's for a lot of these employees, you, you would think that it would be something that, you know, really, gee, what happens if we walk out on strike and they cut off our health insurance? And, you know, yeah, the UAW has a strike fund, but they're still only going to be able to pay part of the cost. Okay, that would all be relevant and whether you go out on strike in the first place. But, okay, that ship has sailed. 414-799-1620.
and again, I, I take no position on the overall merits of whether they're out on strike or not. Renee in Waukesha. Renee, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, back in 76, 77, I worked for Brigham Stratton, and we went on strike. And I'm pretty sure we lost our health insurance while we were on strike also. And that was way back then. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think <laughs> that they shouldn't get their health insurance. Why should the company pay for it? They didn't. They didn't make them go on strike. You know? Well, right. Well, they're just they're just not working. It, it's it's a benefit. I mean, it's it's a benefit that you extend to people who are are working. And exactly. I mean, if it's it's like you quit, you don't expect the company to continue to pay your health insurance. Now you have a right again under Cobra to stay on their plan, but you got to pay the full boat for it. It's just. Uh, uh, you, you, you know, Jeff, and I heard yesterday, um, I can't remember who was talking about it, but they're still getting like a pretty big chunk of their paychecks. When we went on strike, we got $25 a week for picketing. Oh, right. Yeah, out of the strike fund. Yeah. Again, th- th- thanks for calling. See, my sense is, and, and it's just, I could be completely wrong on this. My sense is this isn't going to be a long strike because I don't. I, I, it's, it's really kind of unclear. I don't get the idea that this is about money. Um, I mean, it's always about money to an extent, but I, I don't know that this is about money. This, right now, it, it's about the, the temporary workers and, you know, job guarantees and things like, like that. Those, I, I think, sometimes tend to resolve themselves quicker than issues where they're, you know, really, really far apart on, on the dough. So, I, if I had to make a prediction, I don't think this is going to turn out to be one of these like really long strikes. I suspect that, and I, I can't give you a day or anything. My guess is this is all going to kind of work itself out relatively quickly. I could be wrong, but I think it is. But in the interim, though, you know, it's real simple. You don't work, you don't get paid, and you don't get your health insurance, and so you end up dealing with it, right? This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> Well, that shakedown did not last long. The, uh, the, the I hate to say I told you so, but I, I, I told you so a number of months ago. I predicted that I didn't think this particular thing was going to work. You know, all right, with, with much fanfare, we announced that the 2020 Democratic National Committee was going to, the convention was going to be coming to Milwaukee, and I think that's all great. You know, the more details we find out, we find out that, you know, half the delegates aren't going to be staying in Wisconsin, but, you know, there's still going to be a huge economic impact. There, there's no doubt about it. But here was one of the deals. Um, the host committee, the host committee is trying to raise a bunch of money to put this on, and they came up with this idea to essentially shake down and that's what this was. Shake down local businesses in exchange for being cited as, as venues where people who were coming, you know, would, would be steered, you know, for parties or whatever. So here was the deal. The, it, the Good Land Committee, Inc., which is like the, the, the group that's trying to raise the money for this, what they did is they said, okay, look, here's what we want. If, if you are a venue that's going to you know, host something, and you want to be a preferred vendor. In other words, if you want us to steer delegates, parties, whatever, to, to your business, you had to sign an agreement, 
and that agreement would require you to give 10% of your gross revenues to us during the convention and the days leading up to it. 10% of gross revenues, not net revenues, but but gross revenues. So, I mean, you, know, you understand gross revenues is the, the money that is paid in, all the money that comes in. Net revenues, of course, are, you know, what's paid in, what you have after, you know, you take out your expenses. Well, this committee didn't want that. In order for you to be a preferred vendor and in order for us to steer places to you, you had to sign an agreement where you would give us 10% of your money. Uh, And that's, well, I, I don't. I don't want to use the word extortion because, you know, the people could decide whether they wanted to sign it or not. But, you know, that that's that's the kind of tactic that, you know, maybe you would see from loan sharks and things like that. And 10 percent is a lot. Well, not surprisingly, what happened is a lot of venues and they need a ton of venues for all the different stuff that's going on. Well, lots and lots of venues decided to to pass on this. Matter of fact, they only got about 100 venues that signed the deal to kick back 10% of their gross revenues to the DNC. All right, so here you're in this situation where, hey, we've got all these people that want to have these parties and want to have these events, and, and we've only got 100. We've only got 100 venues that have signed this give us the kickback deal. So what they've now announced is, you know what we said about you know requiring that? Well, never mind. And so the story is now they're no longer requiring venues to donate in order to be like a preferred vendor, you know. Um, so they're saying, okay, we're going to ask, you know, that the places um, help us reach our fundraising goal, and we would ask that you, quote, unquote, donate 5 to 10% of your gross revenue to us as a way of, I don't know, thanking us for bringing the business, which is fine. And they say, if you agree to donate, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll throw you some extra perks, but you don't have to donate. And I, I guess I am not surprised at this at all. I candidly, I'm surprised that you had a hundred venues that agreed to sign this agreement that they would agree to give five to 10% of their gross revenues to this committee in the first place. But a majority of places around here apparently decided no, that they weren't going to do it. The DNC couldn't get enough venues to participate in the kickback program. And so what they've said is, well, well, never mind. And again, I hate to tell you, tell you I told you so, but I said at the beginning, once this was first announced, I just didn't see how you were going to get anywhere near enough venues because 10% of your gross, uh, of your gross proceeds, that's a really big nut. And I, I'm not sure, uh, again, if you're kicking out that much of your gross proceeds, you're really reducing your margins. And, I mean, they got a chance to ask for it. hundred venues apparently signed up, but not enough to make this work. So in what should not be a surprise, now it's not mandatory. So that's interesting. Secondly, before we, we bring in John and Melissa, I, I understand I sound like a broken record on, on this particular thing, but... The way we throw money around on projects that have little or no chance of succeeding. And and because we want something to work, we decide that we're just going to essentially shut down our brains 
because we want it to work so badly that, you know, the fact that it's got no chance of working, we, we don't care. And, and that's the story of what they're doing with this new boutique hotel that they want to locate 2100 West North Avenue for people who grew up around here. That's where the old Sears store was. That just used to be this, this huge Sears store. Now it's at 2100 West North Avenue. And with all due respect, um, if you're looking to put in a boutique high-end hotel, I, I'm, I'm not saying that's the worst location that you could find for a boutique high-end hotel, but let me put it like this. It, it's certainly a location that is going to have its challenges. All right, but I, I understand. There's people who support it. They want to see something like this developed because, again, it's going to be in you know a predominantly minority-driven community, and people think it would be good. Well, the problem is the developer can't can't get financing. They, they you know, normal banks... Normal, you know, places that offer financing, they don't want to touch this because they recognize that it's, it's un, in my opinion, it is unlikely to succeed, but it's a definite risk. So what's happening is the, the common council is being asked to provide loans or loan guarantees to get the project started because if, if it's not for the public money, that's put into this in the form of like loan guarantees, they're not going to get investors. The problem, of course, with this is that even offering a zero interest loan, um, even people with the city say the value of this project after it's finished is going to be less than the money that's loaned. Right now, just just trust me on this one. If you want to buy a house for $200,000 and you go to the bank and you say, hey, I, I want $250,000 for the $200,000 house, unless you've got substantial outside assets, they're not going to give it to you. But this is precisely what that deal is. Here, you know, we're going to be building something. We don't know what it's going to worth. be worth. We have significant questions about whether this is a location that's ever – we want it to succeed because it would be great, but we have significant questions about whether it's got any chance of succeeding. So here, let's take millions and millions of dollars of taxpayer money and let's put it at risk for this because we want it to succeed. And there's even a lot of people in the city, like I say, who are going, look, this this is just an unreasonably risky deal, and we're going to be on the hook for millions and millions of dollars. But the Common Council, because they want it to succeed, has apparently shut down that part of the brain that tells them whether it's likely to succeed or not, and, and they're going to spend the money. So, you know, once again, when people decide, you know, where your tax dollars go, and you decide, you know, gee, um, why are my taxes so high, and why isn't this getting fixed, or why isn't that getting fixed, or why is there no money? It's because the politicians make certain policy choices. And just mark my words, maybe this thing on 2100 West North Avenue is going to turn into just this great thing, and maybe it's going to, again, be a destination place for people from all over you know, the country. More likely, it's going to fail, and again, the taxpayers are going to be on the hook, but Common Council apparently doesn't care. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind. Stick around.